Well, welcome. Um, if you're visiting with us, um, on behalf of everyone who's a member of Pacific Hope Church, we want to welcome you this morning. Um, we're about to, to dive into um, what's known as biblical exposition, and that is the teaching of God's Word, uh, verse by verse. And we pick up where we left off. I was gone last week and want to thank Bobby for preaching a fine sermon last week in my absence, but we're going to pick up where I left off, and that is in Romans chapter 6, and we'll pick it up in verse 15 to the end of the chapter, and I'm going to ask that you stand as we read God's word together. God's word reads, verse 15, what then? Are are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting of that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Holy God, we pray now that you, Holy Spirit, would enable me to communicate the great truths before us this morning. Lord, may I only say what must be said. May your people have ears to hear that which will be declared. This is the truth, for you are the truth. You have set us free. May we know that we are free indeed to serve as slaves of our glorious master, your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Whose slave are you? That's the question. Whose slave are you this morning? And I'm certain that uh, by the end of the message, that will be clear to all of us. But I want us to remember, um, as we continue, before we continue our study, the way Paul opens his letter to the church at Rome. And if you turn back to chapter 1 just for a moment and look at verse 1, I want you to see that 
Paul opens up and he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And again, we see that word doulos, slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, jump down to verse 5, through whom, that is Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the, let's say it together, obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Now, it's important to be clear once again that the basis in which we are justified before God, beloved, is not our obedience. Okay, we know this, do we not by now? It is not our obedience. Faith and obedience are distinct, yet faith, true faith, always results in obedience. Always. Is it perfect obedience? Well, of course not, because we still battle with sin. We'll see that in chapter 7. First we believe, and then we obey. So obedience of faith means bowing the knee entrusting submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our master, both at the start and all through our Christian lives. Now, at the end of the last section that we studied, Paul introduced that always attractive, glorious statement, that phrase that says, you are not under the law, but under what, beloved? Grace. We say, ah, yes to that. We say amen to that. But that phrase, unfortunately, unfortunately, initiates for some a gross misunderstanding of God's gospel, for which Paul goes to great lengths to correct by asking another question in the passage before us today, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Answer? Emphatic. By no means. Now, you remember... Paul begins chapter 6 in verse 1 with a question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He just went on declaring the facts that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. God's grace superabounds our sin, and the believer cannot out-sin God's grace. Amen to that. But some respond with an, abs- an absurd conclusion to Paul's teaching on free grace. Provided by God in Christ Jesus. Now, in Romans 5, which we looked at in detail, Paul logs a list of freedoms that every Christian has. You're freed from the wrath of God. You'll never taste the wrath of God in Christ. You're freed from the penalty of sin. Hell. Eternal separation from God. You're freed from condemnation. You're freed from hopelessness. You're freed from the fear and the reign of sin and death. And you're freed now from the power of sin over your life. Free. An indispensable wealth of freedoms gifted to every person united to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Free. Yet meanwhile, in chapter 6, a gloomy cloud looms over Paul's gospel teaching, informing us that some people have misunderstood these freedoms as a license to sin. Now, in some ways, the remainder of chapter 6, you'll notice this, repeats some of the same ideas we saw last time in the first half of the chapter. But Paul now brings into the picture a new metaphor, A new image, 
a new word picture. Helping us understand the dynamics of sin and grace in our lives as Christians. And that metaphor is that of slavery. Okay? We were slaves to sin. Paul's made that clear. But now we've been set free from sin. We've been set free from the reign of sin. We've been set free from the bondage of sin. And are now slaves to obedience. Slaves of righteousness. Ultimately, slaves of God. Verse 17 and 18. Now, as Americans... We think of slavery in recent terms of colonialism, imperialism, of race-based slavery. But in the first century, slavery was very common. And often people would sell themselves for a period of time in order to get out of debt. For economic reasons, they became indentured servants to a master. And he uses that imagery in order to unpack this deep spiritual reality. Revealing for us that we are all slaves of something. Either to sin or to righteousness. I.e. slaves of God. One or the other. Now, the folk singer and songwriter Bob Dylan, even in the 1960s, knew this to be true. And he wrote the song, Gotta Serve Somebody. Where he wrote, you may be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Dylan's right. 19th century English poet and literary critic Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was by no stretch a Christian, wrote this, quote, The sensual and the dark rebel in vain. Slaves by their own compulsion. In mad game, they burst their shackles and wear the name freedom graven on an even heavier chain. End quote. Meaning, the freedom that people claim to have apart from God, in the end, is only a heavier chain of bondage. In chapter 6, Paul, the great apostle Paul, is correcting misconstrued thinking about freedom. Thinking gone bad. Now, some have understood these freedoms for which we have been graced as an excuse to ignore the pursuit of holiness and godliness. I hear it all the time. Not here in this church, though. Praise God. He started out by saying, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer has been a resounding and comprehensive, God forbid. Absolutely not. May it never be. And he's labored to make clear that when God comes to us in his grace, he breaks not only the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin over our lives. And again, emphasizes that in the passage before us today. In verses 2 through 11, right? We're going to go back a little bit. We're going to look at this whole chapter by the time we're done. In verses 2 through 11, Paul examined the fact that we ought to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. 
Verses 2 through 11 is fact. It's indicative, indicative, indicative. You remember our study? Fact, fact, fact. You were, you've died in Christ. You've buried in Christ, raised in Christ. You're new creatures in Christ. That's a fact. And then, for the first time in all of Romans, he begins to tell us how to live because of that truth, the imperatives, the commands. And then in verse 12, the word therefore then links together a preceding statement to its natural conclusion. Let not sin therefore, because of all that glorious truth, let not sin therefore, believer, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. So the conclusion is that we are not to let ourselves remain under the dominion of sin because we've been set free. We've been bought at a great price, purchased by the blood of the lamb, set free. So here, Paul is addressing all who have been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit, raised from spiritual deadness, set free from this bondage, set free from condemnation. You are no longer under the condemnation of the law. Now, even though we still struggle, amen? Christian, do you struggle against sin? Of course you do. If you don't struggle against sin, you're not a Christian. We struggle and we are engaged in warfare against temptation and sin. You'll always be faced with temptation. We will fall in sin, but we're no longer under the reign of sin. No longer required to sin, because before Christ, you're required to sin, because that's your nature. You're an Adam. But in Christ, we've been delivered and removed from being an Adam to being in Christ. We're now able to resist sin. Enabled not to be controlled by sin because of the very presence and power of God who lives in us, the Holy Spirit. So it's by his redeeming work that the will of those who are in union with Jesus Christ has been set free to cooperate according to the commanded will of God. Remember what I said last time? An unbeliever... You know, people will say, well, everyone has free will. Wrong. If you're in sin and not in Christ, your will is not free. It is in bondage to your nature that is an Adam. It takes God the Holy Spirit to cause you to be born again, to free your will in order to submit to him. That's why Jesus said no one can see the kingdom unless he be born again. That is the monergistic work of God, the one-way supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit. Salvation is all God's work. Amen? It's monergistically imposed. It's monergistically wrought within us. It's God the Spirit coming to the sinner, transforming him, bringing him from death to spiritual life. You play no part in that. That's why Ephesians says you were dead but made alive. No one, therefore, can boast. If you play part in it, you can boast, but you can't. So our justification is the sole venture of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, producing a joint venture unto holiness. A joint venture unto holiness. Thus, the reason we oftentimes in Scripture see sanctification is the subject of a command. Okay, notice Philippians 2 and verse 12. 
This is obviously speaking to believers. Therefore, my beloved, who's the beloved of the Lord's? Those saved in Christ Jesus. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you look at 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4 and verse 1. Finally, my brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not what? They don't know God, but you do, he says to the church of Thessalonica. So in our salvation, God has done a great work and is working in us. He's working through us, and at the same time, he calls us to work out what he's worked in. Salvation, in accordance to his commanded will. Paul is speaking to those whom he has set free a people who are now responsible to and enabled to cooperate with the very grace that God imparts to us in salvation. Are you with me this morning, beloved? Righteousness has been imputed to us, placed upon our account, declaring us as perfectly holy in Christ in spite of our weaknesses, while at the same time, it has been imparted to us, providing us the ability to live righteously. So the command, therefore, is only applicable to those in Christ. And the command is, therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Don't allow sin to reign or to dominate your life, because if you do, you're consenting to it. Consenting to it. Now, ever since chapter 3, In verse 21, Paul's predominant theme has been that our forgiveness and our acceptance with God is grounded in grace. Unmerited favor. Grounded in grace. In Romans 6, he stresses the fact that grace not only justifies, it also sanctifies. He's stressing that we're not only forgiven by the grace of God, but have been made a new creation. He's changed us and is changing us. He's transformed us and continues to transform us. So, he says in verse 13, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, as a resurrected people. Present your members to God, he says, for the sake of righteousness. Your members, our minds, our reasonings, our actions, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our legs, instruments of righteousness. Because you can. Now, instruments in the ancient world were tools, tools of a man's trade. A hammer and a chisel in the hands of a stonemason are instruments, right? Tools of the trade. These are good things, good tools of the trade, but turned on an enemy to kill becomes a deadly weapon. Amen? The computer in our day has become a tool for many in their trade. 
<clears throat> I don't think there's a person in here, most likely, that your work doesn't require a computer somewhere in your company. But it's used by some as an instrument for evil, for lies, for scandal, for slander, for adulterous fornication. Our tongue is a tool. It's an instrument to be used for righteousness. But it can be used as a tool for slander, gossip, to to be used to vilify another or to blaspheme, or to extol or to esteem or to praise. We can use our feet to walk in malice and iniquity or with virtue and righteousness. In verses 12 and 13, we saw once again the imperatives of let not and do not, preceded by all those indicatives, the facts of our salvation. And then in verse 14, he's back to the indicative. Notice, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law. That's not a command. It's an indicative. He says, its dominion dominion over you is gone. Therefore, no longer has domination over the believer because of grace. It's all because of grace. Now, question. What was God's grace designed to do? What was God's grace designed to accomplish in you and in me as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? What what did God intend to do in us by his grace? Now, if we think about this positionally, it's not only that in free justification that, you know, that which has been accomplished for us, okay, that's the aspect of what's been done for us, but what has he accomplished in us? With me. With you. Paul is asking us to ask ourselves that question as he poses this question, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. This is, we're back where we left off in the beginning of the chapter, aren't we? That's how important this is to Paul. This theme is very important. Now, some people think this to mean we're no longer under the condemnation of the law, and that's true, and we say amen to that, Correct? But his point here is that we're no longer puppets on the string of the master of sin. They've been cut, freed. That oppressive, tyrannical master has been destroyed and we're no longer dominated by sin. You're freed from the domination of sin, upheld by the strength and the power of God himself, according to his grace, the Holy Spirit. So, grace has not only accomplished something for me, his desire is to accomplish something in me, and that is a life of righteousness. (laughs) For his glory. For his glory and the good of his people. people. Now, that leads us to our first point this morning in your handout, and that is slavery's obligation. Everybody's a slave of one kind or another. And notice verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, what Paul says here, beloved, is that obligation is not optional. It's like Dylan said, everybody serves somebody. Everybody serves something. 
The issue here is to what or to whom will we be obligated? That's the question. Now, there's no such thing as freedom without obligation. No such thing. Everybody pays the piper at the end of the day, in other words. Paul says you may think you're free, but you're bound to sin. If you have a twisted view that sees grace as a license for sin, as some did, obviously, in Paul's day, that's not freedom. All that is is slavery afresh to that which you were set free from in the first place. Beloved, may we never have this view, may we never take this view that the free justifying grace of God is a license for sin. Let's all say amen. Amen. Because some foolishly do. They did in Paul's day and they do to this day. Jesus came down into the slave market of sin and paid the full price for our redemption to set us free, enabling us to walk in obedience, which leads to, verse 16, righteousness. Now, here's this word, righteousness. This word, righteousness, has all but disappeared in our day from the modern Christian community. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, we spent eight months in the Sermon on the Mount? Three chapters. It was rich. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness. The fruit of genuine faith in Christ, the righteous one, is no doubt righteousness. Christians have said to me, I'm telling you the truth. In other words, this is not an exaggerated story for the sake of illustration. Christians have said to me, Because of grace, we don't have to obey. We obey because we want to out of appreciation, but we don't have to. I've heard people say, we don't really have to obey the Sermon on the Mount because they have this misconstrued idea that the Sermon on the Mount has to do with the age to come. We might do some of the things because we want to out of appreciation, but we don't have to. Well, I reply, oh, we don't have to? obey our master? We don't have to obey our master who set us free? It was God, beloved, who cast our inward natures into the mold described in Romans 6, verses 2 through 11. All those indicatives? He did that because of grace. Showing us that the gospel delivers us from the power and the penalty of of sin, but also shapes our character. It's a transforming work of God. Notice, again, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the what, beloved? From the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So the ability to believe the gospel from the heart bears permanent, ongoing results. We've been delivered from sin's mastery, delivered over to the truth, as Paul put it, verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. There he uses righteousness again. May we never forget this. Liberation. Liberation 
from the old master provides more than new liberty, but also, beloved, provokes new loyalty. It has to. See, if God commands us, his disciples, to love God with all our hearts, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, and love our neighbor as ourself, then they're not optional when we feel like it. Amen? Because we can. Oh, we'll fail every day. But may that never be an excuse as a license for sin. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. Christian freedom is not that godliness is optional. We do it when we feel like it. That's nonsense. That's not the freedom that Paul's talking about, beloved. And if Christians would get a handle on the freedom that we have, it would transform their lives. We're free from the domination of sin, upheld in the strength and the power of God's grace to be like Christ. Little Christ, Christians. Godliness, holiness, morality flows from the work of the grace of God by way of the Holy Spirit in us. We live under the reign of grace where the law is written on our hearts. Amen? And the power of the Holy Spirit enables us to say, along with the psalmist, how I love your law, O Lord. I meditate on it how long? How often? Day and night. And I walk in those ways because it's a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. We obey when we want to, but don't have to. That infuriates me. So there's slavery's obligation. Everybody's obligated to one end or the other. And secondly is slavery's path. Verse 19. Now, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, Paul's basically saying, I'm using this analogy, though it's not flawless, but it's something that you can grasp, these first century Christians, something you can grasp and understand. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So here he renews his appeal of verses 12 to 14, setting before us two masters, two roads. Notice, lawlessness leading to more what? Lawlessness compared to someone who grows in grace. When we grow down, right, when we understand grace, we grow down in humility. Amen? And when we grow down in humility, it's righteousness leading to sanctification. That is holiness. So growing in grace leads to sanctification and holiness, not more lawlessness. When we really grasp this. So this is an appeal that must be heeded. By us, again and again, our our entire Christian lives. Amen? That's why we must preach to ourselves. (laughs) Preach the truth. I told the guys on Thursday, I no no longer get back from a great conference, sitting under great preaching, teaching great fellowship, fellow brother pastors from around the country. I no sooner get home, and I'm home for a few hours, and I go to bed, and... It's like, man, I no longer get home and fall into some stupid besetting sin of attitude, right? And I wake up and you feel miserable. 
Because, man, all this abounding grace, and yet we continue to stumble. But what does the believer do? He gets up. Righteous man falls seven times. He gets up again. Amen? You get up by faith. I remember and I remind myself and I preach to myself the indicative truth of Scripture and then the therefore. Amen? So we must appeal to this ourselves again and again and again and again. Freedom from sin means freedom for righteousness. And grace is the basis of it all. It's the foundation. It's the cause of it all. You're not under the law. You're not under condemnation of the law, believer. Did you get that? You're not under the law. You're not under condemnation of the law. You're not under conviction of the law. Therefore, beloved, you're not under opposition of the law either. Amen? Because you're under grace. Verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free. You were free, but only to one thing. Notice? You were free in regard to righteousness. That's the only thing you were free from. (laughs) The only kind of freedom you had as a slave to sin was freedom from righteousness. That's why good people don't make it into heaven. Well, I'm a good person. What are you going to say when you stand before God? That I'm a good person. I said, you being good in of yourself, you'll go to hell. The only good in me and in you is Christ crucified and raised and ascended. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ on that cross imputed to you, that is the only righteous standard for which you will enter into his presence. That's the only way to be forgiven. That's grace. Now, this false sense of freedom, people who want to wave this banner of Christian liberty as an excuse to sin, that freedom can be enticing, but it's not freedom. It only leads to that heavier chain of bondage, amen? That's all it will result in in the end. It's just a heavier chain, man. Paul continues, verse 21, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things to which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is what, beloved? It's death. Paul tells us in verses 20 and 21 that freedom from righteousness, it's no freedom at all for the believer. It's actually the worst kind of slavery possible. Who are the most miserable people in the world? It's really not sinners that are lost. It's Christians who are allowing sin to reign over their lives. I'm not talking about stumbling in sin. I'm I'm saying allowing it to reign. They're miserable. Why? Because they're saved. And that's how Christians feel when they grieve the Spirit. That's how Christians feel when they quench the Spirit. It's a kind of freedom, but it's a false freedom, and it leads to death. But he says, you're ashamed of those things now. Well, we're now ashamed of those things because we know that they result in death. We know that they come from sin, are laden with sin, and, and our sense of shame shows that we know death to be the proper penalty for such slavery, you see. You know, even if we, and I know this from experience as Christian, if, if we bend our conscience to, to persuade ourselves that this particular behavior or attitude is all right, because we're Christians, we will indeed blush when that and if that is brought out into the open. Will we not? Why? Because we be given eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand because of grace. 
He says, don't let it rain over you. You've been free. Don't return. Don't return to it. So everyone has a master, and that master is either sin or God. You either serve a benevolent, generous, loving master who's committed to our best interests. That is his glory and our good, right? So his commands are, are always for our own good. We no longer serve this cruel, stingy, destructive master of sin. So to be devoted to sin, as a Christian, to be devoted to sin and trying to make excuses for it, allowing sin to reign, and being uh, uh, set apart for Christ or righteousness at the same time, though that's an impossible task. Okay, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. So you, you see a righteous brother who, who's walking with the Lord, and you're allowing sin to reign. You begin to despise him. You don't want to be around him. You don't want to be around fellowship. You run from the church. But verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So you're justified in order to be sanctified and ultimately you will be glorified because you're justified. In the path to justification, there's justification that leads to glorification and in the process, he sanctifies us because of grace. So how does this slavery work? How does this slavery work? Now, Paul has already foreshadowed this concept, this imagery of slavery or that of master was foreshadowed back in verse 12. And he says, sin will reign through passion, okay, through desire. So stay with me here, beloved. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions or its desires. Now, initially, when we give in to a desire or we give in to a passion, the trick is to make it feel like freedom. That's its trick. That's the craftiness, man, of the enemy. And nothing feels Nothing feels more free than to do that which you desire to do. Amen? We get this. Now, when we think of slavery, we think of being forced to do what we don't want to do. Doing what we want when we want. We, th- we think of that as freedom. But Paul says, desires, certain desires, when obeyed, lead to a definite kind of slavery at one end or the other, to righteousness or to sin. That's what he says. Righteousness, lawlessness. Now, desires bent in the wrong direction, and then submitting to them form a habit. We all know about that, be they good or bad. Turning into compulsion until those desires actually begin to control you. Okay, we're talking to Christians here. Unbelievers can't even understand this. And then you have to give in and obey its desires. It turns into a compulsive, addictive kind of behavior. Internet porn can start out as a desired glance, a desired peak, and then a number of peaks. Until it entangles you, it controls you. 
that desire, that passion now controls. Flirting with sexual uh, explicit imagery can quickly can be become an addictive, compulsive behavior. It's a hook. And what you once thought you controlled now controls you. Another kind of slavery that we don't think of as a slavery is worry. Agonizing and fretting out of fear. That the worst is going to happen. You start having kids, and now you don't sleep because you're up all night worrying about them. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if they go this way? What if they go that way? Consumed with nervousness, consumed with apprehension and anxiety, which produces stress, birthed out of a desire for a stress-free life. What an irony. But it controls Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. A passion, a desire for worry. Imagining all day, daydreaming that something bad's going to happen to my little babies. Enslaved to anxiety, enslaved to fear. Now all of us desire, amen? We desire the best. There's nothing wrong with that. We want the best success. We want, I want the best health. I want the best physical health and the best spiritual health possible. That's what I want. I desire that. But yet, if certain desires are allowed to consume you, it can turn into captivity of your members. And you become a slave to anxiety. Now, another less recognizable bondage is the need for approval. This is a biggie. We all desire to be loved, amen? You want to be loved? You want to be liked? Yes, we do. You want to be respected? There's nothing wrong with that, those things in and of themselves. Yet, if this becomes an unbridled desire, it can lead to slavery to the approval of man. Slavery to the approval of man. Traced back to the captivity of fear of not being accepted or approved by others. We become man-fearers. It's a hook. It controls you. That desire begins to control you exhaustively concerned with managing your image, and it's all outward. Now it's this facade that's built up. It controls you, and you begin to control or attempt to control other people's feelings about you. You're a slave. Because all they know is your trumped-up side. (laughs) Constructed out of fear of rejection, fearing that you won't be accepted of being the perfect parent, of being the doctrinally knowledgeable Christian. You know, I want to talk theology, so I have to trump up this side. You drowned in this insatiable desire to be liked and approved by others instead of the one who bought you. (laughs) Amen. So when you're gripped by this particular anxiety, we become very manipulative, we become dishonest, crafty slaves. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
Now, some Christians are snared by this in business. They live a life that contradicts gospel truth, gospel transformation in their work because they want to be accepted by those they work with. It's, they're slaves. So basic human desires, beloved, they're good. These are good. Desire for food, good. Healthy relationships, good. Success in business, good. Success in education, a productive ministry, sexual fulfillment as designed by God, all those things are good. But when the desire is pursued in a way that God forbids... Sexual fulfillment outside of marriage leading to fornication, same gender relationships, forbidden by God. You're a slave. He says to the believer, let not sin reign over your lives anymore. You are free. Don't let this happen. Desiring success is good. Desiring to be married is good. To have healthy relationships, to have productive children, that's good. But they can reign over us as an idol. And then thirdly, slavery's end. Disordered desires lead to destruction. They promise freedom. They promise freedom. They deliver death. For the wages of sin is, verse 23, death. W.T. Shedd said this, quote, Sin is the suicidal action of the human will. Sin is the suicidal action of the human will. The will bent on the wrong thing, pursued at all costs, leads to death. Death of trust, death of relationships. I mean, you name it. What's the earning power of sin? It's right here. The ultimate payoff for sin, the wage, death. This is what we earn. The more sin, the more earning power. And all that's earned is death. Now left to ourselves in Adam, beloved, if we were left to ourselves outside of the grace of God, under the law, you're slaves to sin and you will die the first and second death. But may we not miss that which he compares this with. That celebrated word, but. But. The gift of God. Notice that gift. Gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a contrast between something earned, something warranted, Death. All sin earns is death. But this free gift is something unwarranted. This is what you've been granted in Christ, the free gift of eternal life. He's our master. Sin is dead. The power of sin, dead. He says, don't let it rain. Notice, death versus life. Sin versus God, wages versus God's free gift. This is benevolence at the max, to the max. So let us then, Paul says, give to new desires. That's his exhortation. Let's give ourselves to new desires. Forget the old passions. Forget the old desires. Don't go back. That's like a dog who goes back to its vomit. Don't go there. That's like a swine that's been cleaned who goes back to the mire. Don't go there, he says. We don't have to go there. God has set us free by grace to experience freedom in the fullest sense when we respond with our whole person, all of our members, to the beauty of grace, verses 17 and 18. We're responding to grace. That's why we spent months proclaiming justification by grace alone through faith alone. Amen? 
I told you, never forget that. <laughs> because many of you are sitting here feeling all convicted this morning. But that's not a bad thing, is it? You don't want to feel condemned, Christian. Conviction's a good thing. I was talking to a beautiful, I was sat right next to uh, a senior couple at this conference I was at. Retired, godly people. Man, I love these people. And they're going to come here when they visit. This man gave me his history. It was great. He goes, I don't want to sit in the sermon where I don't go out convicted because I understand grace. It was beautiful. I loved it. I said, brother, please come visit when you come. You'll be given eternal life in Christ. So God's grace and salvation ought to produce gratitude of praise, honor, and commitment to our master Jesus Christ so that we do not give ourselves over again, allowing ourselves, get that? Allowing ourselves to be dominated by that which we've been freed from. He provides the ability. You know, I think some Christians think that freedom, and I don't, don't miss this, some Christians think that freedom in Christ is freedom from obedience. They got it all wrong. Not freedom to obedience. This is freedom for the sake of obedience, because we can, for the glory of the one who saved us. They think it's freedom from obligation and not the freedom of obligation. Paul, this is who Paul's addressing, this kind of thinking. Paul reminds us to be a slave of God is to serve him to become like Christ. And what do we know about Christ? Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, the perfect son, he learned what? Obedience. Have you ever meditated on that verse? The son of God, the perfect son of God, learned obedience through what he suffered? In other words, if you want to be like his son, do what Christ did. He obeyed because you can. So what does he want of you now that he owns you in a redemptive sense? He's our master. What does he want of you? You know what he wants? He wants your availability. He wants a worshiping heart. He wants a heart centered on him and not the debris of the world. It's so easy to get sucked in to the debris of the, by the debris of the world. A submissive spirit that hears the word and desires to obey. Say, whatever you, whatever you ask, master, master, oh my Lord, that I will do because you enable me to do it. Command me what to do and enable me to do that which you command. Not waving the flag, beloved, of Christian liberty as an excuse to live like the world, but rather rejoicing in the liberty and the power that we have to live for God's glory away from worldliness. Single ladies, I have a word for you. Beware of allowing your affections to be turned over to a guy like that. The guy who's continually beating the proverbial drum of Christian liberty as an excuse to be the party boy or the local clubber. Are you hearing me, ladies? Because he will only lead you down the road of compromise. That's not a man. That's a boy 
masquerading as a man. You get it? Beware, ladies. If that's the drum he beats, when you hear it, run. Because there's plenty of them out there. The Christian who deliberately yields himself to serve sin will commit sin and he will reap sorrow. Why should sin be our master when we have died to it? Our old self was crucified in Christ. Verse 6. Fact. Why should we be obedient to a master that's already been destroyed by the victory of Christ at Calvary? When we do, we live beneath our exalted position in Christ. Living like slaves to that cruel, rank, rankest, ruthless master. Sin. Rather than reigning like kings and priests for which he declares us to be. Already. To our great master and high priest, King Jesus. We're his slaves. So he calls us to, obe- to obedience as the slaves that we are with all that he provides to those he's set free. So notice, as I close here now, we're not merely left only with commands, direction, and instruction, but also the very power of his presence to pull it all off, to do what he commands us to do because we can, because of whose we are and who we are. So let it be, amen? Whose slaves are you? It's only pardoned sinners, forgiven, set free, washed, cleansed, that have the capacity to carry out the imperatives of Scripture. People set free, slaves of righteousness, slaves of God. Not unlike Paul. Robert Murray McChain, minister of Scotland in the 1800s, once prayed this prayer. May we adopt this prayer. Very simple prayer. Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Amen? Pardoned sinners, Lord, by your grace, make me be as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. May that be our prayer, beloved. May that be our prayer. May that be our desire. If you don't know Christ, you know a lot about him, no trumped up good that you do will ever stand in his holy presence. It is all like filthy rags. You need a righteousness that comes from outside of you and Christ is your only hope. And I bid you to repent of unbelief, to to repent of any trumped up good of your own and submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ to be saved and enter into the family of a forgiven people, a pardoned people. And if you have any questions with regard to faith in Christ, you can see me at the door and I'd love to talk to you about that. May the Lord bless you as we close in prayer this morning. Father God, 
your, your living word is very humbling. It opens us up. It cuts to the heart. It exposes our own motivations, even as a forgiven people. And we thank you for that. Thank you for exposing us. Thank you for ministering to our hearts. Lord, for every Christian here this morning, in this sanctuary, in the fellowship hall, for every believer saved by grace through faith in Christ, Lord, I ask that you reassure them of the glorious gift of the gospel, that they be assured of this faith, assured of their salvation. And may every one of us, beginning with me, desire to live in a way that reflects the goodness, the power, and the grace, and the mercy that's been granted to us as a free gift through your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.